This is a podcast from The Red House, the former home of Benjamin Britten and Peter Piers. I'm Lucy Walker. Join me, colleagues and other guests for a monthly chat about all things Britain and Piers, plus music, culture, heritage in general and anything else that might come up. Welcome to podcast number four from The Red House. Um, and as in podcast number three, this is not exactly from The Red House. Um, this, uh, for future listeners, is is still in the time of coronavirus um, and we're all working remotely. So I'm recording this from a little study room in my house in Suffolk. And my guest today, Katie Hamilton, is recording it presumably from somewhere in Suffolk too. I am indeed from Ipswich. Um, so welcome, Katie. I'm really pleased you could do this. Um, are, are you well? Very well, thank you. Yes, enjoying the sunshine, even if it's mostly looking out through the window rather than being able to stand in it. Yes, well, you've got your, your daily constitutional to look forward to if you haven't already done that. Um, so we'll just start. We're just going to have a, a conversation really about classical music. It's going to be quite broad, I think, and, and wide ranging. Um, so perhaps just, just to uh, start with, Tell us a little bit about um, who who you are and what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I am uh, a freelance classical music historian, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I trained as a musicologist. I did a PhD um, at the Royal College of Music on the vocal music of Brahms. Mm -hmm. So I mostly was researching uh, 19th century German vocal music and chamber music. And I was an academic for a few years and then because I really enjoy talking to general audiences, I decided that I would take myself out of the university system full time uh, and try and just talk to as many people as possible about classical music. So I write program notes and CD notes. Um, I have a website that I write blogs on occasionally um, and I do some classes still at universities. I teach adult education students at further education colleges. I do work for Radio 3 and I do quite a lot of talks for festivals and for concert venues, pre-concert talks or interviewing composers um, across a huge range of music. So my my kind of remit has gone from as an academic, largely the 19th century in Germany to mm. as a freelancer, sort of eh, about 1750 to now. <laughs> 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 um, and I'm, you know, it's what's lovely about it is that it's a, it's an opportunity to just keep learning new music and keep being curious because I'm constantly being asked to write about concert programs where I don't know all the music or interview composers that's an excuse to go away and find out more about their repertoire and their musical loves um and it's great every every day is different from every other day which is how I like it absolutely yeah you've got one of those great jobs that's a sort of mixed portfolio well a different a different path as you say from the academic path um that, that you might have gone down yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I still do academic research. I'm still publishing. I've got several things coming out um, this year, uh, at least one academic book chapter that's coming out. So I'm still doing academic level research now and again. Um, but I think there's a there's a challenge, a fun challenge in having been taken through all the various levels of music education, higher education um, as a music historian finding ways to explain things to people who might not be able to read music or have not yeah. had very much musical education or are a little bit wary about certain kinds of repertoire. Um, it's, it's a great, I find it a really fun game, basically, mm. to try and find ways of explaining um, relatively compl- complicated musical concepts or just talk about different historical periods and pull details of cultural history together mm. and then talk to non-specialists who, of course, will all have their own 
interests and specialisms and takes on things as well that means I'm constantly being asked questions that I haven't thought of which then means that I can take that forward to the next conversation and so on so um, it's a lovely challenge. Yes that that side of it where somebody asks you a question throws you a complete curveball because you perhaps have been accustomed to talking to people who know more or less where you're coming from what you're talking about and someone asks something that you haven't thought about in years probably i i love i love that side of it you know somebody might just say something like you know why is it that everyone in an opera just sings all the way through and there are no you know gaps and just, sitting here right now i can't i don't i can't think of a good reason <laughs> without having to kind of really rewind it is it, absolutely that and it's one of the absolute joys of of teaching of teaching adults um a lot of the students who i teach in further education contexts are people who have spent their lives um going to things they yeah. go to lots of concerts perhaps they're friends of a um a local uh, opera house or they sing in a local choir something like that so they're constantly surrounded by music they don't necessarily know very much about the music history or how to analyze it uh, they might be able to read music a bit but not perhaps really confidently and they ask amazing questions. Mm. They ask me questions like, yes, but what is a theme? Yeah. How is a theme any different from anything else that's going on in this piece of music? <laughs> oh, okay. Or, you know, the other great classic that I get a lot is, let's say that it's a symphony in G major. Mm. Well, why is the piece in G major if you're then telling them in the program notes that there's four movements and only two of them are in G major anyway? <laughs> so, you know, why do they belong together? All of these things that, as you say, we if you grow up and you sort of take it for granted and it seems that everybody else is familiar with that, we never tend to ask those questions. And it's really good. I think it's really good for us as musicians and music historians to have to think about the answers to the most fundamental questions more frequently to remind yeah. ourselves why any of this is happening. Yeah, that's so true. How, how did you get into it to start with? What was your first introduction to classical music? Well, I had, when I was really quite little, um, I lived a couple of houses down from my grandparents and they had a, a very aged electric organ that picked up the local radio station when you switched it on quite excitingly through the speakers um, and so when I was about three or four I used to go around and, and poke it it made yeah. nice noises and I liked it so for my fifth birthday my my mum got me mum and dad got me piano lessons um, and I utterly adored learning the piano yeah. so um that was my instrument and mm -hmm. remains my, my principal instrument. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a primary school where we, we did sing. We had a good music teacher. We all learned the recorder, you know, the kind of the sound of the 80s of classes of descant recorder players oh, badly man. playing yeah. the theme tune to Match of the Day and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so an amount of that. And then because I was singing in the choir at primary school, when I got to secondary school, by that point, I was playing the violin very badly and gave that up quite quickly. Um, but also I got into singing in a chamber choir and also accompanying the, the real kind of aha moment for me was right at the beginning of senior school. Um, there was a, a girl in my year who is now a professional singer, in fact, who um, she got kind of paired up with me that she would learn songs and I would I would accompany her. And I'd never done that before. And I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. And I then became her regular accompanist. I work quite a lot with other um, pianists doing piano duet music and that kind of thing. Um, and I accompanied grade exams for other students. I played for the choir. I started playing for the rehearsals for the musicals that we did at school. And by the time I got to university, I was also then the repetitor for the university mm -hmm. choir um, and playing lots of chamber music. So I, I'm a pianist, but I'm, I'm a collaborative pianist. I love playing with other people. That's 
that's what's kind of really interesting hearing this because this, we've seemed to have followed almost exactly the same trajectory in a weird way. Mm. Although I had a sort of digression into playing the French horn while I was at um, middle school and upper school and, and in youth orchestras and things, which was fun because I got to do the jealous. orchestral thing. But starting the piano at five and then became an accompanist, not a, I've never wanted to be a soloist apart from I can never memorise anything, but also <laughs> it's just much more fun playing with, playing yeah, with it other is. people. Um, why, just to the, the conversation about that both of us really enjoy talking to people who don't necessarily know much about the technical side uh, of musicology. We, we, we're musicologists, which is basically someone who knows the nuts and bolts of music. Mm. So, so, so history, analysis, um, and, and can, you know, navigate our way through a school um why is it that you think that people are put off by classical music and its world well i suppose it's like it's like everything that's a large social activity if we're talking about let's say we're just talking about live events for the time being without Mm. getting too much into recordings that um we tend to be most comfortable in environments that we feel familiar with so if you were taken to a concert for the first time age sort of seven or eight, or you had parents who were mad about opera and so decided that at the age of 10, you had to sit quietly through a Wagner opera or something. <laughs> um, good luck to you. But, um, <laughs> but if, you, if you grow up in an environment where reading sheet music, reading notation is something that everybody does, everybody at school does, or it's common practice for everyone local to sing in a choir, mm-hmm. um, or everybody in the family plays instruments, maybe you've got siblings who play instruments, so you're used to playing together, then the, the kind of the language of that, the music that you're going to be playing, is going to seem like a perfectly natural, familiar thing. Mm. If you didn't do that, but you did something else, like your parents were, I don't know, mad keen football fans, so you went to football matches mm. every week, you're going to be extremely used to being in large arenas with crowds and you're going to know all the chants. Yeah. I never did that. Mm-hmm. And I find the idea of going to a football stadium quite intimidating because mm-hmm. I don't know what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is what you're used to as you grow up and then being put into a space that is a very unfamiliar space. Mm-hmm. If you feel as if you're surrounded by other people who seem to know absolutely without a problem what you're supposed to do, that's just a bit off-putting. That's really true. And, is, and that's, that's answered a question I was sort of had been vaguely mulling before we started, which is art galleries seem to let, have less of that because they're always packed. Even the quite you know, hardcore sort of niche ones that you'd think would only attract a small audience. But I guess in an art gallery, you can do it by yourself mm-hmm. if you want to. You, you can, people don't tend to, there aren't the rules in the same way. You can take as much or as little time as you want um they kind of there's materials there to help you through it so you can have an audio guide or an exhibition book or whatever and you can then leave when you've had enough but it's it's a much less ritualized experience it is and i but i think even actually even within art galleries i've been to if you go to somewhere like tate modern which Mm -hmm. is you know huge and vibrant and exciting and there's lots of things on lots of different floors and you do find groups and families and you know galleries obviously in the last couple of decades have worked so hard and so brilliantly to encourage young kids to come in to have activity packs and trails so that again from a young age people feel that they can access this material mm-hmm. um you don't have to be quiet um you know you don't have to be um behaving according to a certain set of rules that's mm-hmm. great but i certainly have been to a while ago now but i certainly have been to some exhibitions of you know a great master capital g capital m <laughs> 
where you walk around and even if the thing is absolutely packed to the gunnels, everybody's being very quiet yeah. uh, and quite respectful and slightly hushed. That's and, true. you know, if, you were, if you're there at the back with your mate having quite a loud conversation about how hilarious some nymph or other looks in a particularly <laughs> wafty piece of cloth, um, <laughs> then you will get dodgy looks from everybody else because yeah. you should be quiet and you should be admiring and respectful of the things in front of you. So yeah. um, it partially depends on the kind of art. But I suppose the, the, the contemporary art scene in Britain has, and the bigger gallery spaces for the most part have become mm. really good at breaking that sense down. And absolutely, as you say, I think one of the big things is that you can look for as long mm. or as little as you like. And obviously, if you sit down in a concert and it's a 40 minute piece, mm-hmm. then you're stuck yes. for 40 minutes. Uh, and there's kind of nothing you can do about that unless you want to be that person everyone's going to give the evil eye to as you try and sneak out between movements or something. Uh, yeah. And all, there's a lot of stuff about that, about, about how to behave in a concert hall and a, bit, a lot of anxiety around that that is not necessarily helped by the people that go to them yeah. um because uh, you know they, they want to they go because they like that side of it they like to know what they're expecting and, and to enjoy that kind of absorption you get when you're really quiet and the lights go down and, and you can enjoy it and that someone else there seemingly doing it wrong as far as you're concerned can seem to like ruin your experience but then of course that's really off-putting and anxiety making for people who've come who, who've never been before and just think this place is full of snobs i'm not coming back exactly <laughs> and i think it i mean I think it's 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 definitely fair to say that, you know, the majority of people who regularly attend classical concerts are delighted when somebody who's never been to a classical concert comes along. And and certainly, you know, when I first moved to London and I started to go to concert venues I hadn't been to before, quite often I'd find that the person I was sitting next to would start chatting to me and it was really friendly and lovely. But I did know the basic rules of how to do it. Mm. Um, And it it can also, I think, some of the initiatives, which are all done in good faith, and I think it's important to stress that, but some of the initiatives that certain venues bring in, um, when there was a period a a while ago where some places brought in kind of dress down Thursdays or whatever. Mm. On the one hand, okay, yes, lovely. On the other hand, that does feel a bit like you're kind of humouring the the people who don't know what they should be doing yeah um and um but you know one of the things that slightly gets my go actually i did or to be fair i didn't see it in 2019 is that every year for the last however many years there's always at least one article in a leading british newspaper over the summer about clapping between movements at the prompt that's the one yeah and i just kind of think you know who cares (laughs) actually if if particularly since the whole business of turn down the lights, sit in the dark, don't make any noise, clap only when you're inverted commas supposed to, is such a recent invention, mm. really recent invention, late 19th century invention. Um, and time and again, as somebody digging around in 19th century music history a lot, you find um, stories of these pieces and you know most of the kind of classic concert pieces that we tend to hear regularly are 19th century pieces. Um, so much of the, the, the people who are actually performing at the time, there's constantly stories of people, you know, clapping at the end of a cadenza in mm-hmm. a concerto like you would in a jazz concert, yeah. for example. Yeah. It's, it's worth remembering that these things are all historically conditioned. They are not universal, eternal rules and they can be changed and they can be bent. And part of the point of going to a concert or an opera performance live is that you're in a room with a load of other people. Mm. Yes. You are not all going to be like you. 
<clears throat> that's true because there's this perhaps perhaps this come from the expectation that a live performance should be as pristine and um you can just sort of sit there in your own little world as you can when you're listening to a really high spec recording because with, mm. most people obviously everyone now has grown up in the age of recordings and so the performer is expected to be completely perfect and so is the environment that you're listening yeah absolutely i think recordings have quite a lot to answer for in that mm. sense although of course nobody could possibly have known that and it's one of the reasons why early i love early recordings i love recordings from the sort of 30s and 40s or earlier um where you can hear people banging in and out of the back or live yeah. recordings where somebody's having a coughing fit halfway through the second movement yeah. I, I mean i think also one of the big things that shifted in recording is part of this is that um you know there was a time that when everybody learned how to play an instrument or at least yeah. that's perhaps not entirely fair but Everybody in the middle and upper classes and a fair number of people who were who were working class um, musicians as well, who played in bands or sang in choirs, um, who had a piano at home, who had friends around to play or there were folk sessions in the pub or what people played music. Yeah. And, you know, a listening audience, a listening only community, which is what we largely now are. There's far more of us that listen to recordings than actually either learn notation or learn an instrument which of course the two are not um necessarily together one can easily learn a music uh, musical instrument by ear if all you're doing is listening Mm -hmm. then of course you feel more distanced from a space in which the ways in which you might engage in a different kind of musical uh gig like dancing or clapping or singing along which are all things that you know most of us would do if we were at a pop concert or we might tap our toes to a to a jazz gig or whatever if there's no way of demonstrating engagement if the Mm. way of demonstrating engagement is to sit in silence yeah and you and you don't have that connection to what's happening on stage because you've never held a violin you 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 can't read music you don't have any kind of personal connection to the the process of producing the sound Mm. I think that does make it a much harder connection, social and, and kind of yeah. artistic connection to make because it, it feels further away. Yeah, it feels like something that some that other people do and privileged people do perhaps because, I mean, that's something we can perhaps come on to in terms of not doing it as a child, learning musical instruments as a child anymore. It's, it's mm. so far removed from the school curriculum now it's it's quite um unusual to see it certainly in state schools i was fortunate enough to to um to go and have a have a very thoroughgoing music education in a in a county of bedfordshire that had huge um capacity to not only teach it in schools but also there were saturday morning schools and county youth orchestras and it was just Mm. just tons that you could do that made it completely normal um and that doesn't seem to be the case generally speaking um any longer and that's something mm. that i mean coming coming where, working where i do with the red house and under the um following the legacy of, of britain who was you know a public school educated person but who wanted more than anything for his music to be available to anybody and anybody to enjoy it and he fervently believed that that should be possible and mm. often you know and was i mean you know, these are people of certain generation have grown up performing in Noah's Flood, which was his community opera. It seems that, that about a thousand children must have been involved in the first performance because the amount of people we've spoken to who said, oh, yes, yes, I was in the premiere. Like, well, can't all have been in the premiere. Um, but there is a real ownership of that piece, you know, around here particularly, and, and, and so many people have grown up participating in it. And it was designed to be 
available to professionals, to people who could play instruments, people who couldn't play instruments, and the audience gets to sing along too. I mean, there's there's your yeah. <laughs> your community piece. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that I mean Noah's flood is a is a really fascinating case because it is it is so brilliantly written for community engagement, as you say, on all sorts of different levels. For the time it was written, you know, it requires yeah. um, local Sea Scout buglers. It yeah. requires enough kids in the area who who've got basic skills of playing open strings on their violin. Yeah. You need and a bunch of kids who play recorders at school, yeah. exactly. And also, it is a Church of England piece you need yeah. people who know the hymns so that they can sing along so yeah. it's um you know it's it is brilliant and it's a lovely piece and i've i've um, played the piano in a performance of it when i was a teenager and it was really fun um but the kind of the the things that britain requires his non-specialists to do yeah. speak of an age where exactly as you say it's it's a prior age to now where kids did learn recorders at school and you would get beginner string classes and there was enough funding for local councils and and other organizations that wanted to do something like that to run orchestras and choirs and saturday morning music school um for you know peripatetic teachers to decide that they were going to get all their students together once a month and have a little concert all of these things that just happen less and are less accessible to people Mm. than they used to be yeah so what's um prob- probably I mean you and I in this in the next twenty minutes can't solve the question of music education in state schools I don't think we could we could give it a good shot we can have a go we can have a go <laughs> but um maybe we could park that just for the moment and and just come back to it partly the reason I wanted to to talk to you, to you in particular was that I saw over the a few months ago you were giving a talk to to people. First, first time concert goer, come and hear what it's about. And it was a song, was it a song concert? It was, it was for the Oxford Leader Festival, That's right. who yeah. um, have have started doing these little uh, hour-long concerts as part of the main festival and also at different points during the year. And um, yeah, their, their director, Sholto Kainok, asked me if I would spend half an hour before these concerts just talking about what the heck is a song recital? You know, yeah. why do we have this strange thing of a person and, and a pianist um, person in their pin is standing on the stage and singing a bunch of stuff one after the other. They're very short, usually these songs. They have quite complicated texts, which might not be in the vernacular language of the people in the room. They might have quite complicated stories per song. It's a huge amount of information in mm. a short period of time. Um, and I suppose I sort of, I try and do it as a mix of, here are the things that you might find a bit strange about what you're about to hear. And then I talk about the history of why it's happening. Where did the song recital come from? Why are people writing songs? What, what is art song? Because yeah. you know, it's a bit like the what is classical music question. What, what do we mean when we say you are in a room and, and you're encountering this thing? Um, and then by talking about the history of song recitals more generally um, and how composers come to write songs, then going back to the initial questions of here are the things that you might find difficult, which are mm. things like the language barrier, the amount of information that you're getting in a very short period of time, um, trying to work out what's happening in some of the poems. And generally, the answers to ways of dealing with it are a mixture of don't worry, um, see what you enjoy and see if there are things that you don't get this time. Have another go. You know, if there's something that you think is interesting, but actually it zoomed past so quickly that you don't really know what happened. That's why it's a great 
um, privilege to exist in a time of having such great online musical yeah. resources that we can listen to Spotify or iTunes or YouTube or whatever and go and listen again. Yeah. Um, you don't have to like everything. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a real feeling, and again, I, I find this with my, my university students and with my, my older students, um, that if, if they don't like something, they've decided it's their fault. Yeah. Um, and actually, we can't like everything. You know, we've all got, I'm sure, we've all got composers that we kind of, they are, again, inverted, capital G, capital C, they're great composers. Uh, but actually, we just kind of don't really get it or they don't really move us. Or yeah. there might be pieces that you can you can respect because something clever is happening and that's nice, but it doesn't touch you as deeply as some other music. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's it's just trying to find a basic point of, of connection and not feeling like you have to have absorbed everything that is happening all at once, all first time through, and then be able to talk about it like you're a Radio 3 presenter. That's not the object of the exercise. It's the joy of being in a room with people making music live and seeing what you like about it or don't mm. like about it or what questions you have at the end. I think it would be really fun to do something like that where at the end of the concert, having given a talk at the beginning, you then had you know a, a drink and a chance to chat to the oh, person who gave the free concert talk. Yeah. To say, you know, well, what the heck was all that in that second piece then? I didn't understand what was happening at all. So that there's yeah. a, a sort of second chance to unpack it. And certainly when I've done festival talks for concerts where I've then, because it's, say, a rural festival, so I'm around for the concert and the talk and there's coffee afterwards or mm. something, that's when I've had really interesting conversations with audience members who yeah. have sat diligently through the talk and listened and then listened to the piece of Bartok or whatever it is that they didn't previously know and we'll then come up afterwards and say, well, I sort of saw what you meant about this bit, but I don't really understand why this was happening. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah. And then they've gone home and listened to the recording mm -hmm. and, you know, got a bit more from it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, not trying to understand it all at once. Definitely. And and that not and being given permission to not like all of it because mm. because it's so it's so subjective. You know, I can respond equally well to disco as to, you know, Bartok. So I think that personal side of it is really important to communicate and also that you might you know you might like lots of things by one particular artist but not all of them you might yeah. think radiohead is amazing but there might be one radiohead song that you just can't bear and turn it <laughs> off every time it comes on <laughs> um and i'm sure you know again for for certain composers um and certainly i find that um i mean you know at the moment because it's beethoven year Mm. I'm writing a lot of programme notes about Beethoven and I, I think a lot of Beethoven is fantastic and fascinating and wonderful to dig into. I can tell you now by the end of this year there are going to be some bits of Beethoven I don't need to hear for another five years <laughs> because I would just have heard them too many times and I, yeah. you know, they've had it, they, they need a rest yeah. and that's okay. There's other stuff I can listen to in the meantime. Plenty of stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. that's it. I mean, there couldn't be more um, available at this time anything yeah. almost anything um and that that is an exciting time but then of course you're with your classical music concerts and your schubert leader or or whoever you're competing against so much more <laughs> than yeah. when people did used to go to concerts as more of a matter of course there was a lot less to choose from and a lot less so you, there's always that question of, of um yeah, it, I love classical music and you should come, it'd be great. But then someone would say, well, why, sh why should I bother? I've got plenty of other things in my life and, and uh, lots of other music. I've got more than enough music to listen to that'll last me forever. Why should I 
give any time to this. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we we all like music because humans are musical. Yeah, and I think you know that there's a reason that we invented music as a species mm-hmm. um, of making music ourselves. And of course, there's no reason why um, you know you you must like Bach because you listen to other music, so you must like Bach. <laughs> um, why? No. Um, but it may well be that uh, you that if you do want to try and advocate for classical music, that you can say, well, OK, I think you probably will like Bach because do you know White a Shade of Pale? Or mm. you might like Bach because there are you know, other, other pieces of music that borrow from Bach. Or mm. maybe you really like uh, The English Patient which uses some of the Goldberg variations. Yeah. Or Hannibal, which also, you know, Hannibal Lecter plays some of the Goldberg variations. Um, you know, there are, there are ways in which certain composers um, have ended up permeating into popular culture or broader culture in all sorts of interesting ways. Film scores are a big part of that. Aren't they, though? Um, yeah, yeah. And also, and also video game soundtracks, yeah. too, which quite often use snippets of, of classical music. Um, and that can mean that sometimes people already know bits of classical music that they don't even know that they know. Yeah. And that yeah. can be a way. Yes. I mean, you, you may be too young to remember the that um, advert for cigars or something that oh, you used. Yes. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's, it was um, air on a G-string, wasn't it? It was, it was air on yeah. a G-string. And my, my very first uh, classical album that I ever owned yeah. was a tape called Commercial Classics. <laughs> when I was about oh. five and it was it was just it was a tape of bits of classical music that had been used in tv adverts and on tv theme tunes and Amazing. I had no association for any of them because I hadn't seen most of the adverts or most <laughs> yeah. of the tv shows you, were, you weren't smoking cigars at, at that age. I was not at no. the edge of five yet. <laughs> <laughs> and um and so and I just but I kind of liked the sound it made Mm. Um, I also like the sound that the theme tune of Thomas the Tank Engine made. You know, it was not a mutually exclusive thing. Um, and, yeah, it was it was to do with stuff that was on the telly, mm. you know, music that was on the telly. That was the, the kind of way in. Um, and that, and, and that, then discovering concerts. That music in film, I think, is is quite a good way I've, I've found to, when I'm talking to people about more contemporary music, which has often the reputation of being, you know, cacophonous and unlistenable to and squeaky gate and all the rest of it, mm. that it just sounds ugly and is inaccessible. And you find that even on um, like arts review programmes, people will be quite happily talking about a really avant-garde piece of film or exhibition and then a new piece of classical music. They just, well, I don't, I don't know how to describe this. It's just, it was just noise. And they, that doesn't oh. tend to kind of get reviewed. Contemporary music doesn't tend to get reviewed in, in that way because it's just, I think, perceived as too difficult. All the presenters don't feel equipped to talk about it. But people who go and see films are exposing themselves to quite way out music without perhaps even noticing it. And that it's it's sort of um, like Mika Levy's film score was in was it under the under the skin that Scarlett Johansson film mm. which about the alien coming down is quite a far out score and it's but it's a relatively mainstream film yeah and uh, absolutely film scores are the place where we tend to hear the most broad and wonderful yeah. variety well I mean 2001 not not yeah. exactly a new film but there's Ligeti in the soundtrack um amongst many other things um so yeah, absolutely. It's film, film scores are something I use quite a lot with my students. Mm. And actually, um, I was teaching a course that, uh, this last term just gone on um, emigre musicians during the Second World War who ended up in either the UK or the US. 
Um, and a number of the composers that went to the US who had been, you know, avant-garde opera composers, chamber music composers, Schoenberg and students of Schoenberg who were writing 12-tone music ended up in Hollywood. Mm. Um, and, you know, the kind of the Franz, Wachs, Franz Wachsmann, as he was, Franz Waxman, um, and the Bernard Hermans of this world mm. who were writing edgy sort of psychodrama dark scores yeah to the Hitchcock but Bernard Herrmann yeah absolutely um and and similarly in cartoons one of the Mm. one of the things that we all had a lot of fun with was a a Tom and Jerry cartoon from the 1940s um and it was a Schoenberg student who ended up writing music for some of the Tom and Jerry cartoons and the the scores are extraordinary because and actually I mean, I have a big thing about cartoon music, as you as you know. Um, that the, 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 in those shorts, the speed with which we move between lots and lots of musical styles is mm. incredible because we're constantly jumping from little bits of classical music to American folk songs to Mickey Mouse music. Mm. In other words, music that goes with the the visual on the screen. And this particular composer. Um, the music that he writes for the sections where people are running up and down stairs or jumping out of windows or whatever are sometimes actually serial. He's used Goodness. a tone row. Yeah. But then you immediately jump into Chicken in the Corn and you immediately jump into a piece of <laughs> Tchaikovsky or something else and something else. And, you know, you've gone through about 15 musical styles in the case of nine minutes of film. It's amazing. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, there, there's, um, she just meant mentioning 12-tone music in, in film schools. There's a film called The Taking of Pelham 123, which was made in the 70s, the original version of it. Um, and it's got 12-tone jazz soundtrack so you should um i'll put this we we put together a spotify playlist for each of these podcasts i'll I'll put it on there because it's so interesting and it is it's not strict in the in the terms of um of uh of how 12 tone music is normally arranged which for those who don't know is is, um so organizing principle of um of using all 12 notes of the scale uh in a particular order and then you've got your pattern and you can use that and turn it upside down and play it backwards and all the rest of it but this this is 12 tone jazz and it's really you wouldn't you wouldn't know that you wouldn't get that someone pointed that it's just a great piece of music and works brilliantly in the film that's very cool very cool um yeah just just wanting to um talk a little bit about one one initiative we have at the red house which is which has certainly got a lot of bearing on this which is discovery sessions that we do in normal running <laughs> normal <laughs> operation <laughs> we have once a month um and they're on it's 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 looking at a piece. So come along, hear, hear about the piece. Here's some elements of it. Here's the background to the composer. Here's the context. And then listen to it. And Well, not all of it. If it's an opera, not the whole thing. Um, but if it's a short chamber piece or a song cycle or something, we'd listen to the whole thing. And then chat about it afterwards. And that's it's re- they're proving quite popular. Just obviously the, the people who come who, want, who, who have a musical knowledge anyway. But actually people increasingly are coming who don't know and during the summer holidays, we had huge turnouts of people who were just on holiday and thought, oh, there's a, an hour and a half session on a piece by Michael Tippett. I'll come along to that. That's <laughs> you know, amazing. I, I know. I'm kind of slightly astonished. We could barely fit them all in the room. And, yeah, it's like old-fashioned music appreciation. Yeah. And I think that that, um, I think there's a place for that. And I, it's something I'd quite like to, to, to do more of in, in, a, in, in a way, because I think that that, and it's what you're doing, which which is your pre-concert talk, your concert, and then you have a, a chin wag and a drink afterwards. Mm. It's it's um, it, it's fun, and it's communal, 
and it's hopefully not intimidating. I mean, we did the in one of those sessions last year. We did the Mask of Orpheus, the Burt Whistle Opera that that was wow. on in in um, at the Coliseum at the time. You know, and on the back of it, some of the people that came bought a ticket and went to it, and it it's that's quite a quite a piece that needs navigation through for myself too. I mean, I taught it when I was at King's years ago. Um, and then I went back to all my notes and I could almost see the sort of sweat and angst I poured into as you're trying to understand this piece <laughs> as someone who has a musical background. So, And then the challenge of converting that into communicating it and trying to, to help others navigate through it while still trying to navigate through it myself was yeah. was really um, kind of, it was a really quite, quite a powerful experience. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, mostly I'm, not exclusively, but mostly I've worked with chamber musicians for this kind of um, these kinds of things. Mm. And in a live environment, they're wonderful, particularly in a festival where you've got a group of people who are together for quite some time. Um, because, uh, I mean, I did uh, the Child of Our Time session with Oliver yeah. and you last year, um, where we were able to play bits on the piano and then yeah. listen to recordings. And that's a nice way of doing it, too. Um, one of the things that I've done a number of times at festivals, particularly with string quartets, who are, in my experience, fantastically willing always to come in and help in pre-concert talks, is um, I was doing some talks a number of years ago at the Rydell Festival for a, um, a complete cycle of Bartok string quartets with the yeah. Heath Quartet just before they recorded them. And the players very generously came onto the stage for the talk before each concert and I sort of said, OK, well, you know, it's the sixth quartet and it's a series of variations and the viola is going to give you the melody that the, the variations are on right at the beginning. Here's the viola playing the melody. Yeah. And we then have little step outs from each of the players in the talk, which meant that when they then got to hear the piece immediately afterwards in the concert, they were looking at the same person who'd just done the same thing, but now within the context of listening to the whole. Mm. And I think absolutely that kind of navigation work where you can explain and take to bits and then immediately listen to the whole thing, whether it's a recording or whether it's live. Yeah. And, and, even, you know, and if it's a recording, shout over the top. This is yeah. the bit where have you seen or, you know, wave your hand in the air when the music goes up or down or whatever. Um, yeah, my, my students at City Lit, um, we, we do quite a lot of that with bigger scale pieces or more challenging pieces and it really does make a difference to I think just to give people a sense that they are understanding structurally something about what they're listening to um, and that that gives them something to hang on to although I did have a student um, a couple of years ago come to a just a one-off introduction to classical music session um, over the summer at, at City Lit and it was really fascinating he, he came up at the beginning of the session looking slightly worried and he said to me if I know how it works, is it going to stop being magical? Oh. Um, which was very touching, but this sort of idea that, you know, knowing how the special effect works in the film means that you know it's just a tacky special effect and you can't enjoy the magic and mystery of somebody actually yeah. flying or going backwards or whatever. Um, and I said, no, 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 it's going to make it better because you're going to understand what the composer's doing that, you know, that you can then hear and that you've got a sense of navigating what's going on. And mm. if the composer is a, the kind of composer who's playing, deliberately playing jokes on you like Haydn or somebody, mm. um, you'll get the joke. You'll mm. get the joke more than you otherwise would. So it's OK. You know, we're not going to break it. No, it's going to help you. I think so too. And you can still then, it doesn't mean that you can't have an emotional reaction at the same time. It doesn't mean that you can't let it all, you know, wash over you in a, in a sort of glorious, you know, experience. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a curse of, of 
boffinry <laughs> if you've done a lot of study <laughs> and you've just got you've you've trained yourself in that way actually switching off your analytical head can be quite quite difficult sometimes i find i find that especially when i watch sometimes listening to music sometimes watching films i just i'm always like so what's really going on here i want to <laughs> understand the subtext and i said oh shut up just watch the film um so that that it, i can kind of see that person's concern um but i think i think it's possible to do both and they can and they can speak to both because you might Absolutely. you might then sort of say why do i find this music so um powerful and emotional and you may never really know the answer but you you know that then you start to know the kind of things that get you and you can go and find other things get you in the exactly. same way exactly yeah. and i yeah i mean like you there are there are moments where um it, it would be i i don't have it very often where i feel like my brain is on overdrive so much that i'm not just listening to the thing yeah um but um i suppose it's more something that's likely to come into play in a in a staged performance of something if part of my brain is thinking, but this is a really stupid plot. <laughs> I mean, really stupid. Yeah, let's and be frank about opera, at, could be really yeah, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at suspending disbelief through all kinds of nonsense, but just occasionally um, I, it's getting that bit of my brain to yeah, shut up. Fair enough. Um, but um, but yeah. yeah. Here's a question. What composer do you not get? I confess I slightly struggle with Shostakovich. Um, there are there are some bits of Shostakovich I really do um, love. And actually, in exactly the same way as we've been saying, you know, the mm. more that you listen and attempt to understand, the more that it finds you ways in. Um, I was working on some notes for a concert about six months ago that involved the Shostakovich symphony. It wasn't a symphony that I knew. And I was very fortunate to have a lengthy conversation um, with a Shostakovich scholar about it. Yeah. And because that person really knew the piece and they were really able to explain it, having listened to it first and kind of gone, no, oh, all right, whatever. <laughs> I then, having spoken to him, listened to it again and thought, ah, now I see. Okay. Ah. So there are one or two pieces. I, I love the uh, the first piano concerto with um, trumpet and strings. I love the piano quintet um, and the eight string quartet and yeah. one or two other things. But there are there are problems for me with Shostakovich. I just don't quite feel that yeah. very kind of strong emotional connection that I know, you know, he he is tremendously important for an awful lot of people. Yeah. And I'm I'm still working on that. Okay. Well that's interesting what though. About you? So the uh well mine mine is <laughs> most of the eighteenth century. <laughs> um I yeah, I, I mean I know Mozart and Haydn. I mean, it's really bad. I, I can't. I can't find a way in at all. I can sort of listen to them and think, oh yes, this has got a kind of um, pristine rigor to it, and, and all the rest of it. But I get very, very irritated after quite a short time, because <laughs> um, mainly I'm a 20th century person. Mm. That was the first music I discovered. Was was Debussy? Was Sibelius? Was Ravel? Was then oh. Poulenc, who I did my PhD on, and Britain and um, that crowd. So the sort of first half of the 20th century and then more increasingly more later 20th century. Although, weirdly, I really like Schubert. So I need someone to explain why I should like the whole of the 18th century. Small task. <laughs> I shall start making some notes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, next, next time we meet, we have a sort of conversion session. Great. So what I've been doing in previous podcasts is ask people... Um, I should have warned you about this actually, and I didn't. <laughs> what uh, actually it should be an easy question to answer. What what was the last piece of music that you 
listen to and just and then we'll add it to our to our playlist oh well i've got a couple um mm-hmm. because i don't like listening to one thing at a time um <laughs> So um, I have been listening to um, a wonderful, rather recent choral piece by Judith Weir called The Big Picture, uh, which was written for the refurbishment of Aberdeen Art Gallery um, and is for um, SATB choir, so mixed voice choir and a two part choir and a solo clarinet and uh, keyboard and percussion. Um, And all the movements are different poems about different different colours. And it's rather Aww. wonderful. So I've been listening to that. Great. Um, I've been listening to um, Kurt Vile's Street Scene, which I was talking nice. a little bit about Kurt Vile as part of a course recently. And there's a beautiful, beautiful song in it called Lonely House, um, which I've been listening to slightly kind of obsessively on repeat because it's just so wonderful. And then as a, as a bit of a classic, because, you know, we live in strange times and sometimes <laughs> it's nice to just listen to familiar things. I have been listening to the soundtrack of... Um, Walt Disney's Pinocchio from 1940, which is just the most gorgeous, wonderful score by um, Lee Harlan and several others. There's about three composers and lyricists working together on it. Um, and it's, it's, it's Wagner. I mean, there's leitmotifs all the way through it. Um, and it's just beautiful. There's some gorgeous wow. songs, but the scoring itself is absolutely stunning. Oh, so wow. that's, that's my little clutch of listening for the that time being. It's a nice eclectic choice. Um, <laughs> I just uh, just chipping in with the, with mine is is a couple of things. Um, one is something that in the, in the last podcast with Oliver Soden we were talking we ended up talking about Rejoicing the Lamb, Brit- a Britain piece, mm. which is a lovely um, choral piece for for choir and organ. And Imogen Holst, who was Britain's assistant and an, a composer herself, orchestrated it. And Oliver was I, I kind of it was sort of fallen off my radar, but Oliver mentioned it to me, and it's absolutely lovely. Um, wow. So she's taken the organ part and she has orchestrated it and that's really makes it sound very very different um and is is well worth listening to um and then another one i've got i was just driving um i had an authorized trip to the shop in my car place to mention um and i have a memory stick full of all kinds of random things um on my car radio and what came up that always gets me is nick drake's riverman um, oh. which is an amazing song with mm. so much in it. It's incredibly complicated and um, really hard to sing along to because it's in such a weird time. But it's him and guitar. It's in five times, so five beats in a bar. It's got an orchestra comes in. It's, it's really moving and really powerful. So, um, yeah, that, that's my two. It's um, a gorgeous song. It's a gorgeous song. Yeah, so that's that will go on the, yeah, quite quite broad-ranging playlist, I think. <laughs> for this week um, um so thank you katie this has been really interesting and i i wish we could so, well we, we will we'll just carry on talking about this stuff because it's really important and, and uh we'll speak soon hopefully when well before all this craziness is over but you know just anyway for sure yeah look after yourself and yes. um yes we will be in touch no doubt and uh hopefully we'll be back before too long with another podcast 